Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, we're thinking about nostalgia, about periods of history that spark a lot of memories, about personal pasts and things we miss, or things we're glad are over. So we're better to start than with two of our longest serving and highly esteemed editors, Tony Lacey and Elio Gordon, talking about the days of publishing during the Mad Men years and how things have changed. Thank you to everyone who supplied questions on Facebook. There were some gems that Tony and Elio were thrilled to answer. Next, we're off to the Yorkshire of the 1950s with a reading from Bobby on the Beat, Pamela Rhodes' true story of life as a policewoman then. Following that, we have a telephone interview with the charming Molly Moran, author of Aprons and Silver Spoons, the heartwarming memoirs of a 1930s scullery maid, who transports us back to a London we would barely recognise. Next, we go a little more modern, with not one, but two very different readings on Thatcher's England. First up is a reading from Dominic Sandbrook's Seasons in the Sun, The Battle for Britain, 1974 to 1979, followed by an extract from Charles Moore's official biography, Margaret Thatcher. We then have the interview with Jay Griffiths, author of Kith, who questions how happy modern-day childhoods really are and thinks about what exactly childhood is supposed to be. And finally, we move on to historical fiction with B. Ridgway, reading from her book The River of No Return, and an interview with Alicia Foster, author of Warpaint. So, without further ado, here's Tony Lacey and Elio Garden talking about Penguin's earlier years. I'm Tony Lacey. I joined Penguin in the summer of 1972, and although it wasn't an independent company at that point, it had been bought by Pearson's a couple of years earlier, so it was part of a conglomerate. It still felt like a very small company. Everybody knew each other, the warehouse people. We all went to the canteen, um, and it's, of course, changed immeasurably, and the changes didn't really begin to take place in terms of size and so on until the mid-'80s. Um, now, Elio, you joined even before me, so you knew it when it was probably truly independent. I joined in the mists of time on the 2nd of January, 1967, and I didn't join Penguin, I joined Longman. It was called Longman's Green then, and it was later on, five years later, that it combined with Penguin, who, uh, who were owned by Pearson. Um, I was 19 when I first joined Penguin, and I came up from Eastbourne for an interview in two places. One was British Steel and the other was something called a publishing house, and I didn't have a clue what it was. I was very ignorant. And just by, I couldn't stand the idea of British Steel, but I felt at home at Longman's. Hence my career began in the African Education Department. I came straight from university. I'd seen an advertisement at the back of a now defunct magazine called The Listener, and I came down for an interview to London, and I had an interview at Penguin, and I had an interview at an advertising agency and it was a very difficult decision because I got offered both jobs. And Penguin offered me £1,200 a year, and the advertising agency offered me £1,500 a year. And I absolutely agonised over it. And I decided finally to take the Penguin job. And my wife, uh, very sweetly, um, then my girlfriend, said to me recently that the reason she decided to marry me was because I hadn't taken the advertising job. I don't really believe her, but it was a nice thing to say. That's very sweet. I was offered £600 a year, but I was very, very, very junior. I joined as a copy editor, and um, on my first day, I was given the proofs. We had very long proofs then, and was asked to start collating all the corrections for the complete poems of John Keats. Still a book, it's in print, actually. And I thought I'd gone, I died and gone to heaven. It was absolutely fantastic. It was like a complete extension of university. But I was in for a bit of a shock, because at one o'clock, or five to one, 
everybody put their pens down. We were working in West Drayton, not in Harmonsworth. Everyone put their pens down and said, right, we're off to the pub. And I, being a rather naive young man, rather enjoying what I was doing, said, no, I think I'll stay and do this. And they said, no, you won't. You're coming to the pub. And that's roughly what we did for the next two years. We went to the pub every lunchtime and had two or three pints. We didn't have pubs so much, but the long office lunches were absolutely, they may sound a myth now, but they were real. And um, people disappeared for hours at a time. Um, Authors expected special treatment, including liqueur, after lunch. And I remember a few years later, after I'd moved to the general division of publishing, where I had to take um, a journalist out who was writing a book on the sinking of the Lusitania, and he wanted two or three rounds of brandy at the end of the meal. And (laughs) he slithered under his chair. I didn't have the brandy, but was sitting there. Uh, I have many drink stories, of course, but my most famous one is being told that I was going to look after Kingsley Amis. And um, I stupidly invited him out to a restaurant in deepest Kensington because Kingsley really didn't get outside of North London. And he arrived in a terrible flustered state because the minicab driver hadn't been able to find it at 20 to 2, uh, 40 minutes late. And I said, would you like a drink? And he said, yes, I'll have a triple Armagnac, uh, which he downed in one go. And I looked very nervously at the glass and said, would you like anything else? And he said, yes, I'll have another one. <laughs> so um, that was what it sort of was like in those days. I don't think publishing was... Entirely unique. In fact, quite obviously, I think actually a lot of British industry amazingly was like that then. It seems absolutely extraordinary now, but uh, publishing was certainly part of it. But I think a lot of British industry was probably like that. Apart from drink, there were gifts. I remember very well that production always got a crate of dead pheasants from the printers. Now, that turned later on into wine, but I certainly remember the corpses being delivered to the office. Uh, One of the questions was um, what who were our most memorable authors. And I, I mentioned Kingsley Amis, who certainly was very memorable. I suppose my most memorable experience was um, publishing the Satanic Verses. When it all broke out, I got a phone call uh, in the middle of an editorial meeting and it was asked to go out and take it, which was very unusual. And uh, Simon Rushdie was at the end of the phone and he said there's absolutely terrible news. Um, there's a fatwa um, being announced. And this really does date us, doesn't it? This was 1988, I suppose. Uh, 89, I think, actually, spring 89. Uh, I had never heard the word fatwa. And I said, what's a fatwa? And he said, it's a death sentence. And I said something ludicrous, like, oh, I'm so sorry, how terrible. And he said, no, hold on, it's on the publishers as well. And um, that was quite a shock. And we went back in, and within about 10 minutes, all the police were around there from Kensington Station. And the the next year really was a complete... Nightmare. We had sort of security in the office like an airport. We were taught how to look under our cars for bombs. They came and reinforced our doors at home and all those kinds of things. And I, I, there was certainly a moment when I thought, well, I didn't come into publishing for this. I remember the same thing because my husband Peter Carlson was involved and we had to have, we were offered bomb curtains at home, had to move our child away, checking under the cars and then doing evacuations from the office for some of the hoax calls where certain people had to bravely walk round with the police or the bomb disposal people. It was very tough, it was hard. One of the big changes, of course, was that in the early days, paper was largely a paperback house. Um, So there was a sense in which a lot of people in editors in the house weren't really editing, Um, although, of course, we did produce lots of paperback originals like Pelicans, but a lot of the job of paperback editors was just courting the hardback companies who, who relied for their survival on selling paperback rights to Penguin. So 
a lot of it was just going out and um, courting them, you know, having lunch with them, persuading them to sell their wares to you rather than another another paperback house. Um, and certainly, you know, people joke about when you're an editor in publishing those days, it, it was sort of a question of white, just going to parties with white and white and so on. And actually, there was a bit of truth in that. There was a lot of just going around networking and making sure that you got offered the paperback rights. Um, I worked in the hardbacks in Longwinds and then in Penguin. And what Tony says is very relevant because one of my jobs as a junior was to send out and court the paperback um, houses with our offerings and also to submit to book clubs and to the press. There, wasn't, there weren't that many other departments then. Now there are completely separate rights departments, publicity departments, but we did all the work. It was a one-man band show on the whole. We decided to start our own big hardcover imprint in the early 90s, Viking, and then really weirdly within about three years we had bought Michael Joseph and Hamish Hamilton because partly as a defensive measure they'd come on the market the Thompson companies who then owned them wanted to sell them and we didn't want them getting into the hands of any of our rivals because a lot of our paperback rights depended on those two hardcover imprints so within about three years we'd gone from having just Alan Lane to having four and that was a really big difference we had a we had a completely different kind of company on our hands from then on and then later of course we bought North American Library and so on and the whole American side grew to the vast size it is now so the really big change in scale took place um, really in the sort of mid 80s. And I suppose now the bigger the great big change in scale is of course the development of the digital era uh, which has really been with us for the last five years or so um, and how we now have to think of initiating new books, that means hardbacks and our own paperbacks, but at the same time thinking about digital editions and also, of course, certain smaller editions of books which appear just digitally. Uh, it's another world, and of course this actually lends a hand to people who haven't found a conventional publishing house in that they can now publish themselves straight into digital editions, which is absolutely extraordinary. And often it goes backwards in that a hardback or paperback house will pick up digital edition and bring it into print. I think the changes that we are seeing now are the most dramatic that I've seen in my publishing career. It's changing at such a fast rate and it's very hard to know what the future will will be, both the digital stuff that Elio refers to and also the retail changes, Amazon, obviously, and, and on the high street. It was essentially a pretty stable publishing situation that I came into in the early 70s. And in fact, it was, it was growing. Mass market sales, I mean, sales of paperbacks were absolutely enormous. It was quite common to have print runs of 200,000 and so on. You know, you'd get W.H. Smith taking 50,000 copies. And um, that was quite a stable situation. It grew very exciting in the 80s with the growth of literary publishing. For some reason, literary publishing became very sexy and big amounts of money were, were paid and this for, for books. And this coincided with the arrival of Waterstones, which changed the retail scene. But the actual way that the industry was structured and the way we worked was pretty similar. But in recent years, the changes have been absolutely enormous with social media, of course, marketing all that, and the digitization. And, and I do think it is very, very hard to know where the industry will be in five years' time. Um, to move um, sideways, really, one of the questions from Vic Clark was, when your job is based around reading, do you get a chance to read for pleasure outside work? Um, and there are many other questions. We've also been asked, how many books do you read a week if you're an editor, and do you read them in full or in bits and pieces? 
Um, our jobs are, of course, based around reading. And sometimes, I'm afraid, the private reading does have to go on the back burner if there's a great deal that's going on, if there are new submissions coming in, in a you know, in large quantities, or if you're working actually on the editorial side of a manuscript. So in my case, um, yes, I do read for pleasure, but on the whole, I stockpile my choices for my holidays. I've always got a couple on the go, but then the big amounts are for the holidays. Yes, that's pretty much my situation. The difficulty, and I don't think people who are not editors really understand this, is that the reverse is that you're reading lots of stuff that you're having to make quick judgments on. And those things you probably aren't reading in huge detail. You, you just, to be able to get through it, you have to kind of speed read and get a sense of its market value and whether you want to publish it or not. But at the same time, you're having to work in a completely different way on books that you have bought and are editing. And editing is a very, very slow process, particularly with non-fiction, perhaps less so with fiction, where the decisions are taken sort of they're more general decisions about, you know, whether the ending's right or whether it needs another character and so on. But if you're seriously editing a non-fiction book, it can be very, very time-consuming. And those those two kinds of activities um, do make actual private reading very, very difficult. Um, on fiction, if you think you like a script or you think there's potential, you obviously have to read it right to the end, and it could be three or 400 pages. On non-fiction, on the whole ideas are submitted in the form of outlines and they can be anything up to 80 pages. So it's a very different um, way of judging in that the reading, you don't have to read quite such large tracts of text to work out. And so often, actually, you just get a feel for whether the subject is commercial and if the f subject is well written, if there's a sort of place in the market for it. And if you like it, then it goes to the next stage. Somebody asked whether uh, what was the most realistic advice one could give anyone going into the publishing world. Uh, I'm tempted to say have a private income. That used to be the answer that was always given in publishing um, up to about the 60s because a lot of publishing those days um, really worked on the back of unpaid, brilliantly talented, but sorry, not unpaid, but poorly paid women. If you read publishing memoirs, there are a lot of sort of single middle-aged women who were the best editors um, in London and... They were paid very little money, and they did rely on private incomes. We're not in that situation, of course, at the moment, so that, that is a rather poor joke on my part. I don't really know what the most realistic advice is. You've really got to love it. It's, it's good if you like it, but it is very, very all-consuming if you don't. I don't think anyone coming into publishing could pursue their private interests very much. It's not one of those kind of nine till... 5.30 jobs. If you're an editor, certainly you've got to do a lot of networking. So you've got to sort of be out at parties. And, I know, tough job and all that. <laughs> you've got to be out at parties and so on. You've got to read a lot. You've got to edit. So it, it really is very, very full on. Another question we had, which isn't linked, but a bit linked, is what was the best, most helpful piece of advice you were given on the publishing business? Now, I thought of one thing, because when I joined the general division from my Africa days, I worked for a wonderful editor called John Guest, who was quite old in my eyes. He was about 50, but I was really young. And I remember him saying to me that the editor is always responsible for anything that happens on a manuscript, on a book. And even as recently as two days ago, there was a big drama where there was a terrible mess up in America. Nothing to do with us in the UK. But the editor concerned got the rap from the author. And it sort of represents the fact that we have to be ultimately responsible for all the different aspects that go to make up a successful publishing 
period for a book. Well, I agree with that. I think you are the absolute first and last point of call for the author, first off. I mean, writing is a very, very lonely job. You're sort of sitting in a bedroom or a study overlooking fields or whatever. And um, the writer must feel that he can ring some, that there is somebody in the, in the house who who is pushing his book through. And you are sort of mixed. You're a kind of mix of bank manager, marriage counsellor. Um, editor, obviously, to all those things, to that author, I think, if you're doing your job properly. But also, from the point of view of Penguin, um, you've got to drive the book through the house because you bought it. And if you're not really interested in it, that, I think, does become seen, is seen by other people. So um, I think that was a very good piece of advice that John Guest gave Elio, that you know, you, are, you are the person who owns the book. Um, one question here. How different do you think the role of an editor might be in the future? Now, there's a question I can't answer because what's going to happen next? I mean, everything's moving at the speed of light in terms of the digital era, in terms of the complexities of conventional book selling, in that I'm afraid, sadly, one quarter of all um, British booksellers went out, um, independent booksellers went out of business last year. Um, orders from all the retailers are on a much lower level than they ever were before. We don't get, as Tony was saying, those big, exciting, long print runs anymore. We can reprint quite reasonably, but we don't get the big ones now. So how is the role of an editor going to be? Well, they'll always be there to work with the author on their scripts, and that will always be like that. Whether the book goes into digital or real book, that will never change. Um, but I simply can't answer what else we'll have to look after as the years go by, and by then probably I'll be long gone. I do think it, our jobs have shaded a little more into marketing. I think the roles were very much more demarcated in, in our day. We had sort of big separate departments, often on different floors. It seems extraordinary now that marketing was on a different floor from the editors. But now, I mean, I spend a lot of my time you know, thinking about, for example, the data stuff um, is very much p part of an editor's role. Social media, we're asked to participate in and so on. So it's no longer a question of just buying a book and making some marks on the manuscript and so on. There are a lot more things that the editor has to do. And they may not be very good at them. There are rather different qualities required than they once were, perhaps. Tony, how do you think we should wrap this up then to tell... We've told them all about the past. Is there any little gem you can offer about the future? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let me just say I still get tremendous pleasure from seeing the finished books. Obviously... I love my authors, or most of them, not all of them, most of them. And um, I, like, I like my colleagues and so on. But the, the thing that still amazes me is when the finished book comes in, it is a fabulous feeling, and as it was in the you know, late 70s. And I don't want to romanticise it too much, but something that was perhaps an idea exchanged with an author in a pub or an office or, or was a proposal, thin proposal from an agent, suddenly becomes this penguin book three years later i still i still find very magical i completely agree i got a hardback in yesterday from a very very old author he's nearly a hundred and um, we had a lot of work to do on the script and it was thrilling to see it i got two paperbacks in today paperback editions of hardbacks i did last year and they're only the paperback as such but again there was a lovely sense of excitement they look different they got different covers and it sent me back into the last five or six years, both those books t took from the manuscript, the outline coming in to the fruition in the paperback edition. There's always that buzz or fizz in me, just like Tony said. Speaking of fond memories at Penguin, 
As some of you know, back in 2011, we held a poll to find the new voice of the Penguin podcast, and the producers thought it would be really funny to play you my audition tape. So excuse me while I run away and hide. Here goes. Hello, my name is The Voice, and you're listening to the Penguin podcast. With the dawn of the new year, we thought only natural to do a podcast special on detox. So, to start you off on the right foot, we're going to be featuring an interview with Dr. Mike Dow, author of Diet Rehab. Next up, we have a reading from Bobby on the Beat by Pamela Rhodes, all about her experience of being a female police officer in 1950s Yorkshire. A lady policeman, eh? Whatever next? 1st of October 1951. We've founded a welfare state and fought a war. Britain stands on the brink of a new age, full of optimism and the wonders of labour-saving devices, convenience foods and television. But in Yorkshire, just as it's been for billions of years, the heavens don't give two hoots for optimism. They open up just as they always have and pour their watery offering across every hillock, cobbled street and country lane. What's more, I'm nearly late for my first day of work and running full pelt in the biggest rainstorm I've ever witnessed in my short life. Water finds its way onto and into everything, including up my nose and down the back of my shirt. It seems to slither up drain pipes and other things that could have no conceivable use for it. Dustbins, tin roofs, a pair of old boots. The rain pours relentlessly across everything in its path as I leg it towards New Biggin on the way to Richmond Police Station. I hold firmly onto my regulation handbag, leather with a broad strap which contains my whistle and a notebook, all now thoroughly sought through. But it's my precious shoes which have stayed up half the night shining that are the wettest of all. And they certainly aren't shining anymore as I slosh through the tidal wave now making its way down the road. What will Sarge say? He's such a stickler for punctuality and smartness. I've been warned that every morning there's an inspection and the officers on duty line up in a row while he walks up and down to check the length of the lad's hair, the crispness of their shirts and the shine on their shoes. Dripping with mud, I shake off my feet one by one and carry on up the hill towards the station as fast as I can. Towards me, running the other way, a figure in a huge brown coat, floppy hat and corduroy trousers tied at the ankles with brown string is running down the hill with his arms waving. Miss, miss, look out, he's on his way, my Bertie. I couldn't restrain him, by lord I couldn't, he's got a will of steel, that lad. This was the last thing I needed, some batty old farmer to deal with, making me even wetter and later for inspection. But the man grabs me by the shoulders. Miss, run for it, he's on his way and there'll be no stopping him now. He's got a firecracker up his... Sir, please, stop shaking me. He's now spraying a fountain of spittle across my face. Oh, sorry, miss, only you must hurry. It's the new bear and he's escaped and he's wild. The new baby? The bullock, my Bessie's bullock. He's got the devil in him, I swear it. As I look up, I can see the massive animal round in the corner, nostrils snorting, water streaming down his coat in sheets. He runs this way and that, slithering and slipping on the cobbles, but managing to build up a fearsome speed. He's heading right for us, past the post office and on towards the marketplace. Quick, run! I grab hold of the old man's coat, which is ominously sticky, and pull him along behind me. As we run, his breath, a heady mix of whiskey and swede, washes over me in dizzying waves. I don't know why he's being like this. His sister's an angel, by lord. I only turn my back for a minute, and then he turns on me. Come on, hurry. I can practically feel the bullock's snorting nostrils at my back, but before he reaches us, I catch sight of a red fern box in Marketplace. It's one of the boxes which will become as familiar to me as my own home over the next few months. But for now, it's nothing less than heaven sent. I pull the farmer in behind me, heaving the door firmly shut. I lean back, trying to stop the old man from falling onto me in the cramped booth, when the animal slides to a stop in the muddy water and crashes up against the door in front of us, 
his huge, flaring nostrils puffing steam onto the glass, brown eyes looking up, terrified. He lets out a long line as though someone has slowly and deliberately stepped on his tail, then slumps down headfirst in the mud and gives up the chase. And that's why I was late for my first day of work, and why I failed my first inspection. A loud bang at the front door woke me from the deepest of sleeps. Rubbing my eyes, I stretched, noticing that the rain had finally stopped after weeks of constant downpour. The first frost of the year was sparkling round the edge of the window, and it was a clear, starry night. Between the trees, a half-yellow moon lit up the clock. Ten past three in the morning. I looked out of the window and down the front garden, where a figure in a black helmet and greatcoat was shifting from foot to foot. Shivering, I got dressed quickly and ran downstairs, trying not to wake my landlady, then peeped round the door. A twitchy young policeman stood on the front step, breathless from running. Grab your things, we need you down the station, we've got a situation. Hello, Bill. What is it? I whispered, my words puffed out in white clouds. We've picked someone up on the Great North Road, she's in a bit of trouble. Sarge says you're to come right away and bring your coat. I grabbed my hat and bag and we walked at a brisk pace into town. There wasn't another person in sight, not even the milkman or a hint of morning sun. The only sounds were the shop shutters swinging and the clatter of our boots. As we walked, PC Bill Bryant explained to me that the woman they had brought in was, as he put it, a lady of the night. He said they were often picked up on the Great North Road near the army barracks, selling their wares along the roadside. I'd never seen one of these women in real life and was a bit apprehensive, but, as the only female police officer at the station, it was my job to be there when a woman was brought in, so I had to put on a brave face. I soon got used to being dragged out like this at all hours. Bill chatted on excitedly. She was found by traffic patrol wandering onto the road, drunk as a lark. She could have been killed. He revelled for a moment in the drama. As he spoke, I tried to remember all the offences it might be possible she'd committed. I'd just spent the last 13 weeks at the training centre, learning the ins and outs of every angle of policing, and I scanned my mind thinking back to the big textbooks we'd had to memorise. Drunk and incapable, it would be at least that, surely. But at that time in the morning, groggy with sleep, everything seemed to blurry haze. Richmond Police Station consisted of two small stone cottages, knocked into one. The main room was more like a cosy sitting room, with, amongst other things, two chairs, a table and a blazing open fire. As we walked in, Sergeant Cleese, the duty sergeant in charge of the night shift, was holding up a woman at the front desk. In the flickering light, she looked a bit worse for wear, though she was very tall and elegant, a bit like a young Bette Davis, with lavender silk gloves right up to the elbows, a silver fox fur with a real fox head draped over one shoulder, and with her hair piled up high in curls. I noticed that the makeup round her eyes had smudged, and there was a large bloody cut on her lip. As we came in, she made a dash for the door, shouted something incoherent, burst out laughing, then into tears, and collapsed onto the floor at my feet. What a lovely hat, she slurred, then slumped over. Oh good, Rhodes, you're here. Sergeant Cleese never lost his cool. He always responded with military precision. If you lift her arm right there, you can help me get her down to the cells like so. We half carried the woman, who was surprisingly heavy, down a narrow stone passageway and into the cells. An overpowering smell of damp and vinegar hit me as we entered the cell. To this day, I still don't know why it smelled of vinegar. I walked over to the little iron bed where we sat her down and I used the handkerchief in my pocket to clean off some of the blood from the woman's face as she slurred and nodded. It was rather tricky as she kept grabbing out at imaginary adversaries and trying to say something. Don't hit me, I didn't mean to, she said, followed by a plaintive, why me? When she fell asleep, I realised that she couldn't be much older than 20, about the same as me. What different lives we must have led, I thought. After all, I'd never even kissed a man. 
I wondered what it meant in real life to be a lady of the night, but I couldn't imagine it. Righto, we'll check her in an hour or so to see if she's sobered up, said Cleese, and as he shooed me out. Then he shut the door and turned the key. The next day, Pearl, as she called herself, though her real name we later found out was Mary Brown, sat in the office cradling a strong mug of tea. The cut on her lip was still bleeding a little, but she was more concerned with getting hold of some hair curlers. Be a day, will you, and get me something for this mess, she said. I can't let him see me like this. She was genuinely quite distressed at the thought of being witnessed in such a state of disarray. In the heat of the moment, I remembered an old trick I'd learnt from one of the girls at training school, a cunning method using pipe cleaners in place of curlers. So I went into the office and found some, and she fixed them in place before Sarge came back in with his notebook and pen. When she was settled, Cleese asked her a series of questions. Why was she out that late? Had she been drinking? And so on. And I took down the statement later as carefully as I could in my neatest handwriting on the statement sheet. It turned out that Pearl was a dancer from Leeds who'd auditioned for a big training school in London and got a place too, but she needed more money to pay the fees. I met this lad, Reg, who said he owned a few nightclubs. He could have charmed the rattle from a snake. Anyway, he said he'd get me a job dancing at an exclusive review bar. So he swept her off her feet and then up the aisle, but it wasn't long before he wanted her to earn money in other ways, and if she refused, he hit her. That night, I said I was having none of it anymore, she said, pausing to consider how much she should tell us. Anyway, he got a bit angry, if you know what I mean, and one thing led to another, and here I am with a bloody lip and Reg is nowhere to be seen. So I drank the rest of the gin, and the next thing I know, I'm in here with you lot gawping at me. Sergeant Cleese and I listened patiently. He's all right, really, she laughed. He can't help it. He'll change, I'm sure. She looked down and twirled the ring around her finger sadly. I probably deserve it in any case. Eventually, the sergeant went out and conferred with the inspector for a while in his office. Cleese gave her a good talking to about the dangers of being a young woman on the streets and told her to be sure to take care. Suddenly, a man burst in through the front door demanding to see his wife. I have to admit he was quite handsome, with slicked-back black hair, piercing eyes and a neat pencil moustache. But he had a strange way about him I just didn't trust, Jock. A lady policeman, eh? he said, eyeing me up and down. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Nice hat, by the way. Before I could reply, Pearl ran over and flung her arms round him. Reggie, darling, where have you been all my life? Right here, Puskins, right here, always. As the pair embraced, Reg looked back over his shoulder and gave me a deliberate wink. When they'd left, Sergeant Cleese shuffled some papers together and took a slug of his tea. Nice girl, that, he said. I doubt that's the last time we'll see her in here. But then, what can you do, eh? What can you do? As they walked off up the street, Pearl with her fox fur swinging, Reg in his pinstriped suit and upturned collar, they could have been film stars, the happiest couple on earth as the credits rolled. But as the newest Bobby in Richmond, I was about to learn that things are very rarely what they seem. Now we've got a telephone interview with the marvellous Molly Moran, who tells us about her life as a scullery maid in 1930s London. So, Molly, you're yes. joining us here on the Penguin Podcast to talk about aprons and silver spoons. Right. Um, how are you? Oh, I'm all right, thank you very much. Good. Um, I've got some questions here, um, so I'm just going to fire away. Good. So you mentioned Downton Abbey a few times throughout your story. Do you enjoy the programme? Oh, yes, yes, I do. Do you, do you feel that it paints a false image of what life is well, like? Well, the whole point is we didn't see so much of the upstairs as there is on the television. You see, our life was mostly downstairs. And I think 
they had a harder life downstairs than we seem to have had. I don't know whether it's so, but, I mean, the work was hard, but we were treated well. Okay. I really enjoyed the recipes that you include in between chapters. Oh, yes. So cooking's clearly been a really big part of your life, and I think still is. is oh, there, it is, yes. Is there one recipe that you particularly enjoy making still? Oh, well, I still enjoy making puddings and that bread and butter pudding is the most popular one that I know. That's one of my favourites, actually. Yes, everybody, all the men especially who I know, they love that. I think it's because it's old-fashioned, you know. And have you passed on your passion for cooking to your children, your grandchildren? Oh, yes, both my children are very good cooks, my son and my daughter, and they enjoy cooking. Yes, they all, they all enjoy cooking. That's good. Um, so speaking of family, you mentioned the book that family was everything um, in those days. Oh, yes. So are you close with your family? Can oh, yes, yes, I see them. I'm very, very lucky. Uh, my son lives with me and I see my daughter every day and, and see my granddaughter and that. Yes, oh, we're very close and relatives for the ones who are still alive. We all keep in touch with each other. Lovely. So... For somebody who has had such an exciting and energetic life, uh, you still seem to be living life to the full with parties and lots of cooking. What do you do to relax? Play Scrabble. <laughs> Are you good? Yes. Well, I used to be. I still can play quite well. I win quite a lot. Yes, I, I would say I'm reasonably well still because I've got all my marbles, you see. <laughs> um, in, in the book, you... Um, speak a lot of the war and the effect it had on your father as well as the effect it had on you and those around you. Um, it must have been hard to see what your father went through post-war and then to see your husband go off to fight, you know. Oh, yes. Well, my father was ill all my life. I can't ever remember him being well. And But my husband and my brother were both lucky. They were, they were in the war. My um, brother was a Lancaster bomber and he didn't get a scratch and my husband didn't get a scratch in Burma all the time. So we were really very lucky. And do you have any relatives in the army now? No, no, none at all. Okay. Um, you think about whether those young men would have signed up in the first place if they had have known what they were going off to face and to speak of um, and speak of the after-effects of war and the government efforts or lack of um, looking after ex-servicemen. Do you think that enough was done at the time, and do you feel that more could have been done? Oh, yes, I do think more could have been done, although there was much, much more done after the Second World War than the First. I mean, they were dreadfully neglected, the men, after the First World War. Mm -hmm. No pensions, no nothing, but after the Second World War, things were much better. OK. You mentioned that in the book that the best times in your life were when you were serving other people. I'm just wondering why you preferred working to not. Well, I think that's when you're young, isn't it? That was young and we had a full life. And I mean, I had a good life when I was in the Air Force. I lived overseas and all over the place. And since, I can't complain. But I mean, when you're young, things are different, aren't they, really? You see them differently. So that leads me to my next question, actually. Um, you've clearly had quite an adventurous life from jumping into filthy water and falling off horses and going on lots of adventures um, and you find it hard to turn down a dare. Are you still daring? Have you done anything outrageous recently? Oh, no. At 97, it's a bit difficult. I take chances still, you know, and up to recent years, I mean, I was, when I was in business, I took business chances, but no, I'm calm, much calmer now. OK. Um, moving on to romance now, I hope you don't mind. No, no. Um, 
you've had some boyfriends and broken a few hearts by the sounds of things. Oh, doesn't of them. <laughs> <laughs> years um, and years ago. <laughs> do you believe there's just one person for everyone? Well, not really. Do you think it's more complicated than well, that? Well, I think so. I mean, you see people get married and they, oh, they're in love and that, and then five years later they can't stand each other. I think a lot of it's circumstances and the person can serve, don't you? I think, I think so. So your relationship with Tim has stood, you know, the test of time and overcome the hardships of war. Um, it must have been difficult to kind of carry on the relationship while he was serving um, abroad. Well, I lived, as um, I said in the book, we, my mother and I lived in Wisbeach. Um, you know, we had a, a rented house and we lived in Wisbeach all during the war. My daughter was small. And I'll tell you something, my mother kept an eagle eye on me. Otherwise, I shouldn't have been as state as I was, I don't <laughs> think. No, no, she kept an eagle eye on me. I didn't get much chance to do anything else. Um, you live in, is it Bournemouth now? I live in Bournemouth, yes. Do you enjoy being by the sea? Oh, yes, I can see out right out to the Isle of Wight where I sit out to sea out of my bedroom window. Oh, lovely. I'm off, window. I'm off to the Isle of Wight next weekend, actually. Oh, I always like to see the Isle of Wight and Swanage from where I live, my bedroom, you know, hanging right over the sea. Oh, lovely Swanage. Um, I'm just wondering, because you worked in London, when you come back now, does it fill you with kind of... Um, a sense of nostalgia? How do you think it's changed? Well, I don't know the place. When I came back last time up to London, when I was on this morning, the driver took us round um, Cadogan Square, and mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it was the same place. When I was there, when I used to be scrubbing the front steps, I used to look up and down Cadogan Square, and sometimes there wasn't a soul about, only the paper boy. You can't imagine that now, can you? No. And there was, oh, when we went round there, there was lorries and scaffolding, and every, you know, cars everywhere. Oh, no, it's not the same. I hardly recognised any of it. Park Lane was more or less the same, but um, not really. It doesn't seem the same to me. Well, Molly, thank you so much for talking to us. I think that's actually all for questions. But while we've got you here, is, are there any questions you've really wanted to be asked about the book or that you'd love to Oh, about? no, no, I've been asked everything as possible <laughs> to be asked over the last ten weeks, I think. You're probably tired out. No, I've got... Well, but they're all the same. I think people must be fed up with reading all the papers and seeing the same photographs. Definitely not. But anyway, I'm very grateful for all the, you know, notice that's been taken. Oh, it's a fantastic book. We've really enjoyed it. Um, yes. And it's been really nice talking to you today. And they've been very good at Penguin, very helpful, so... Good. All right, then. Well, thank you so, thank so you. much. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Next, we've got Mari Yamazaki, reading from two very different books on the Thatcher years. Hello everyone, I'm Mari Yamazaki, I work for Penguin Press and I'm going to be doing a reading from Seasons in the Sun by Dominic Sandbrook. Uh, now I know there's lots of Dominic Sandbrook fans out there and you probably all saw him on BBC Two when he did his fantastic 70s documentary and there was lots of, you know, nostalgic things in there from music to Spanish holidays and avocados for all those people who might remember that sort of thing. Um, and his books are just as brilliant. And so the reading that I'm going to do now is about Star Wars, which is obviously an archetypal, one of the great films, not just of the 70s, but of all time. But you might not have known that it was largely a British success story. 
On the morning of 7th of April, 1976, a film called Star Wars began shooting in suburban Hertfordshire. On the surface, Star Wars seems an odd choice to reflect British life in the late 1970s. The brainchild of a Californian television addict, inspired by westerns, comic strips and Hollywood film serials, it ostensibly has little in common with the world of Jim Callahan, the Sex Pistols and the Good Life. Yet in Britain, it was by far the most popular film of the decade, attracting an audience of almost 21 million people. Among post-war films, only The Sound of Music has ever done better. More to the point, it was largely a British endeavour. The script, the money and the three lead actors came from Hollywood, but with the exception of some location footage from Tunisia and Guatemala, Star Wars was filmed in the heart of the home counties. The cinematographer, the set designer and the costume designer were British. So were the art directors, the cameramen, the electricians, the carpenters, the stuntmen, even the orchestra. Almost all of the faces on screen too were British. Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing were already household names. Dave Prowse, the West Country actor who played Darth Vader, was familiar to millions of children as the Green Cross Code Man. Peter Mayhew, who played the furry Chewbacca, was a porter at King's College Hospital. Of the actors who played R2-D2 and C-3PO, Kenny Baker had appeared in circuses across the country, while Anthony Daniels was an up-and-coming West End actor. And even in 1977, when the film was first shown in London, a few eagle-eyed viewers might have recognised Dennis Lawson, who had been in Dr Finley's casebook and Survivors, or Don Henderson, once of Crossroads and Poldark, or even Malcolm Tierney, who had performed with the Royal Shakespeare Company and later had a regular part in Brookside. As though confirming the bleak reports of British decline in the mid-1970s, the production of Star Wars had been a tortured process. The Actors' Union, Equity, were initially reluctant to allow the film's three American leads into the country, relenting only when the producers pointed out that hundreds of British jobs were at stake. The film's nominal star the unknown Mark Hamill, had never before visited Europe. When he went into a London hotel to ask for directions on his second day, the receptionist assumed he was an IRA bomber and called the police. The shy young director, George Lucas, felt equally adrift. Although his temporary home in Hampstead was lavished by local standards, he complained that he could not get a decent meal and his wife could find nothing to watch on television. To add insult to injury, the house was burgled while they were filming, the thieves making off with Lucas's colour television and his wife's jewellery. Even at work, he never felt at home. To his British crew, he seemed aloof and unfriendly. He sacked the editor halfway through production, while relations with his cinematographer, the old Hitchcock hand, Gilbert Taylor, came close to collapse. If there was one thing that really shocked George Lucas, though, it was the crew's working habits. Since the beginning of the 1970s, American commentators had held up Britain as an object lesson in the dangers of socialism. For Time magazine, it was a model of labour indiscipline and overly ambitious welfare statism. For commentary, it was an industrial slum. For the CBS Evening News, it was sleepwalking into a social revolution. For the Wall Street Journal, it was simply the sick man of Europe. These were caricatures, of course. If the condition of Britain really had been that bad, Lucas would never have chosen to film there. Even so, he was infuriated by his crew's tightly regulated routine. Every morning they began work at 8.30 before a mandatory tea break at 10. At a quarter past one, they had an hour-long break for lunch. 
At four o'clock, they had another tea break, and at 5.30, they finally packed up. At first, Lucas assumed this meant they would begin wrapping up, but by the second day of filming, he realised that stopping at 5.30 meant stopping at 5.30. Even if they were in the middle of a scene, the crew would stop dead when the clock reached the half hour. The remaining shots would have to wait till the following morning, which then meant a further delay while they moved all the equipment for the next scene. Already infuriated by Hollywood restrictions, Lucas could barely believe his eyes. He asked if they would consider working overtime and discovered that they would have to vote on it every morning. Whenever he mentioned it, they always said no. And this was not the only sign of the times. On the surface, Star Wars seems just another slice of nostalgic escapism. There's no moral doubt, no self-hatred, no racial issues, no women's liberation and no sex. Well, even stylistically, there are no flashbacks, no unreliable narrators, no alarming jump cuts or juxtapositions. Star Wars was a fairy tale, poised between old and new, both excitingly modern and defiantly backward-looking. And in the depths of a cold British winter, with the headlines full of decline and discontent, that was precisely what people wanted. And finally, the next reading I'm going to be doing is from a very exciting book, Margaret Thatcher, the official biography by Charles Moore. Now, this book has been commissioned for about 15 years and we were not allowed to publish it until Margaret Thatcher passed away on account of all the people who gave interviews to Charles said they would only speak to him on the condition that it wouldn't be published until after she died. Obviously, it's made such you know news across the world, her recent funeral, and she's an incredibly divisive figure. And we've just heard from Dominic, and I think you can't mention you know, the 70s and the 80s without mentioning Margaret Thatcher. The secular celebrations were less awkward on 12th of October, 1,250 representatives of the task force marched to Guildhall with a fly-past of helicopters and aircraft. Then there was lunch inside. The top brass sat with the Prime Minister and the Lord Mayor at the high table, the officers and other ranks at the lower tables. When Mrs Thatcher rose to speak, suddenly, before she could say anything, there was a standing ovation from the floor started by the boys. The other politicians couldn't believe what was happening. When Mrs Thatcher had quietened everyone down, she said, It is I who should be down there thanking you. The night before, at number 10, Mrs Thatcher gave dinner for the Lord Mayor and about 120 of those most involved in the Falklands victory. In her speech after dinner, she quoted the Duke of Wellington, There is no such thing as a little war for a great nation. She spoke of the spirit of the Falklands and went on, or is it the spirit of Britain which throughout history has never failed us in difficult days? She spoke like Queen Elizabeth I, remembered David Goodall. She looked like Queen Elizabeth I. So many people had been invited to the dinner that there was no room for spouses at table. Instead, they were invited for post-dinner drinks in the drawing rooms. Because all the main players in the Falklands crisis had been men, Mrs Thatcher was the only woman at dinner. After the toast which followed her speech and the reply from Lord Lewin, the Prime Minister rose in her seat again and said, Gentlemen, 
Shall we join the ladies? It may well have been the happiest moment of her life. Now we have an interview with Jay Griffiths, author of Kith, who investigates what childhood has become in the West and what she thinks it should be. Hello, I'm Roy McMillan. What is childhood supposed to be? Different societies treat their children in strikingly different ways and with startlingly different intentions. Jay Griffiths, author of Wild, explores the rich layers beneath the idea of childhood itself in her new book, Kith. It's a poetic work, taking tales and investigations from around the world, but in places it's polemical and particularly angry at the way the West turns children into consumers and treats schoolchildren as a cross between factory workers and prisoners. That is not, she argues, what childhood is for. On the phone from her home in Wales, she told me what sparked her curiosity about the riddle of the childscape. What it was was that for a very long time, um, I've noticed, as, as so many people have, um, that children in this society are not that happy. Um, I've also noticed, and it's something pointed out by anthropologists and historians, for decades, if not, well, hundreds of years, that children in indigenous societies tend to be amazingly happy. Um, and one of the things that I felt was that, that, you know, that there was something of a riddle going on. Um, and that it's not to say kind of, you know, that all indigenous societies everywhere have always, you know, like happy children and we have always miserable ones, because I don't want to make that kind of sweeping generalization. But what I do want to look at is the sort of, you know, some of the um, very common attitudes um, that traditional societies have held towards children and childhood. Um, and also some of the things that children themselves say about what they need, like, you know, they need they need play, they need outdoors, they need animals, you know, they like that clamouring, I want a kitten, I want a kitten, I want a kitten. <laughs> no. um, so I already knew when I was writing Wild that I wanted to write a book about childhood. And so what I did, because, you know, there was no way that I could do those same journeys again. And I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to kind of replicate something like that. But what I did when I was traveling for Wild is that I had a sort of second notebook open all the time for things to do with childhood. So I was asking people about childhood as well, and I was kind of, you know, noting various things that I could come back to while I was doing that book. There seem to be several core issues here. One is to do with play, one is yes. to do with the outdoors, yeah. uh, but there is also, a, a running through the, the book, a kind of, there are echoes and resonances with particular ideas such as exuberance and nature and delight and yeah. exploration and mud. Um, <laughs> it's how Glorious all of those mud. tie into the notion of self-discovery and self-expression. Yes, yes, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the things, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that as as well as play, as you rightly say, which I think is, you know, fundamental, and it's not just what it looks like, you know, it's 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 deeper, it's not just that kind of, you know, children are out of it bit of playtime kind of, you know, behave better and are happier. But it's actually the root, in a sense, it's the root of metaphor, it's the root of our sense of art as well. That's where it begins, is in play. Um, you know, and it's the, it, it's, it's the ability for children to learn to take chances and to take risks and to, you know, and to live in a way that, um, that isn't, 
scripted that isn't kind of wholly supervised, that is deeply, deeply imaginative. And, you know, what psychologists will say is that's absolutely essential for their development. You know, that in imaginative play, they learn a sense of what's called private speech, that they self-regulate, they learn to plan, they, you know, they think aloud. Um, and when all their time is kind of tightly structured and tightly controlled, is that that precise imaginative play is what disappears. And, you know, then you've got all the other aspects of kind of play and consumerism, because one of the things it seems to me that, um, you know, that, that with real play, imaginative play, like that beautiful term make-believe, you know, that children do, is that what they're learning is that they've got an abundance within them, that they don't need to pay for stuff. Um, but in the context of a very consumerist childhood, what children are being taught is that they've got a scarcity within them, that they're the beggars of the, of the entertainment industry, and as parents ruefully <laughs> acknowledge as the beggars of their parents, you know, can I have and I want and da-da-da. You know, so I was trying to put play into those contexts of, um, you know, of what... Um, you know what it what what it what what it does to the spirit, what it does to the mind, um, and and in the long term, what it does to society, because all of the arts trace their beginnings in play. You know, it's you know, of like art taking a line for a walk. You know, it's a playful thing. You know, a play. Um, you know, written by a playwright, is playing the violin. That there is that jeu d'esprit at the heart of all art. It's not though, as a book, either a straightforward polemical piece, nor an academic piece, nor a uh, a, 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 an anthropological report. It's written with a very strong literary sense as well. It's full of puns and linguistic games itself. The the, the name uh, Kith uh, is based on a, 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 a misapprehension that most people hear the expression Kith and Kin and they just assume that the two are you know much the same, like goods and chattels or aid and abet. But they're not. That Kith yeah. has a meaning that runs outside the notion of family, quite literally. It's about the land, the Isn't home that area. Right? The the word the word kith can refer to kin and extended family and things, but in that phrase kith and kin, its original meaning was, it, as you say, it was the um, the locale, it was one's home acre, it was the sort of you know that that home territory. It's got nothing to do with kind of you know a political state or a you know homeland in a sort of you know larger country. So it's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with that little bit, you know, your home patch where you know where you first started out. However, you know, however big or small that is. And the point uh, is that for you, the word carries a kind of an extra resonance and you use that in the way you write your book. You aren't just giving us examples, although you do, of how other societies work, how other childhoods develop, but you use language in exactly the same way that you would if you were writing a, a piece of fiction or a piece of poetry or a piece of you know, prose. It is that much delight in the language itself well, uh, which I think is, is, is which I think is kind of core to the way the book is told, isn't it? I, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, the thing is, to me, it's like you know, I love language. I think that there's a wisdom in um, in etymology that is absolutely priceless. I mean, the kind of you know, like like the etymology that's bound up in the one word tree, you know, which is related to the words true and trust and betrothed and endure. All of those things are related to the word for tree. And it really seems to suit the way that children, for example, find, you know, they, they find in trees something to trust. You know, it's a rare child who doesn't find a tree, a friend. 
and there's something solid and truthful and enduring about it. And children can get unbelievably upset if a tree that they know is cut down, especially if it's for a reason that they don't comprehend. For you, then, the the, the ideas of, uh, that run through the notion of childhood seem to be as uh, complex and nebulous and deep-reaching and ramified as trees themselves and landscapes of childhood imagination. The whole thing seems to be bound up with an imaginative sense of one's place in the world. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, what, you know, what I'm not saying is the kind of, you know, is the simple argument, good though it is, the simple argument that children should get out more. But I'm, I'm really deeply trying to look at the, um, the way that, ch- that children think, which in, in some senses is like, you know, my best resource for that is that I happen to remember my childhood incredibly well. And I can remember that sort of, you know, the way that things switch from one thing to another. I can remember very well that sense of sort of, you know, the, um, you know, the sense of time, which is different for a child than it is for an adult. Um, and I can remember that feeling of like, you know, how, um, you know, how a child's mind grows you know how it expands and how it grows and expands in regard to all sorts of different things and some of that is the natural world some of it is very cultural like you know how children read how they take in um paintings how they start making paintings you know how they practice words um and how they you know they're they're in some ways they're you know they're experts in soul matters that you know that children can be deeply interested in the hugest questions like kind of you know what happens after death? You know, do you believe in God? Is there kind of, um, you know, what's the difference between the soul and the heart? Why, um, you know, the the question of why, which is always that beautiful ultramarine kind of question, is so much more complex than all the kind of much more mechanical, like, you know, um, how and what and where and when. And why is the question that children are always fascinated by? Because they're looking for the bigger pictures of things and because their minds are always on the move. Their minds are questioning and questioning and questioning, which is, you know, to me related to that whole issue of the quest that, you know, children are bound to be on. Fairy, you know, and the, the, the fairy tales always express so well. You know, you start hard by the great forest, but you have to go on the quest. It's also about space, though, isn't it? It's to do with the space inside their heads yes. and the world outside them, that there is space for endless nothing, which yes. is in itself productive yes. of infinite everything. Yes, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think it's one of the things that I've um, tried to draw out in my book, is to say, look, you know, we know that children need attention. We know that they need all sorts of um, closeness, particularly when they're infants. You know, the, the best, you know, infancy is the closest. But I'm also kind of looking at how later on they need an incredible um, privacy and they deserve that. And it's a kind of, it, it is a sort of soul-making privacy, the way that children make dens, the way that they, um, the way that they hold secrets, the way that they want their kind of secret drawers, their kind of, you know, their, their special treasure boxes. And in their dens, it's like, you know, very often, I remember this very well, and I know a lot of children do, is that they may go to a den. And, it, you know, very often, to the adult eye, it's nothing at all. It's just like a scruffy little bit between the fence and the hedge, you know, or in an urban situation. It's one of the few kind of like little overlooked kind of rubbly bits of waste, you know, like the wreck we used to call the recreation ground near us. And it was a wreck. 
But we loved it because the adults didn't go there. And quite often what kids do is they go there to be alone. And it's not because they're doing anything productive. It's not, you know, it's just that it's that self-reflective kind of um, innerness and interiority. And it's like making a cocoon. It's like, you know, the psyche making a cocoon around itself, which also, you know, myth then testifies, doesn't it, that, you know, that psyche, the, the Greek goddess, is perceived as a moth or as a butterfly needing a cocoon before it can fly and in order that it can fly, which I think is a really beautiful representation of kind of, you know, what in myth of what children do with their dens. It's like going there for some... You know, very, um, um, you know, very intangible but very important need. Have you sent a copy to Michael Gove yet, by the way? <laughs> do, you, do you need me to answer that question? <laughs> Next we have a reading by B. Ridgway from her new book, The River of No Return, part historical fiction, part time travel action thriller. It had happened ten years ago. It had also happened two centuries ago in the hills south of Salamanca. As the most honorable Nicholas Falcott, Lord Nick to his men, led his cavalry division in yet another charge, his horse was shot out from under him. He freed his feet as the horse fell, and he rolled away unharmed, looking up and to his left. There was Jem Jemison, locked in combat with a big French foot soldier. Jemison caught Nick's eye, and Nick saw that he was in trouble, Alarm flickered in his black eyes. As Nick began to raise himself, he saw the black horse rearing directly over him, the French dragoon on its back, saber lifted high. Jem wasn't the one in trouble, Nick thought, as the hooves descended. One moment he was staring at his death, the next he was in the path of an impossibly bright light bearing down on him with equally impossible speed. Then he was screaming into the roar of a thousand furnaces as the light crashed over him. When he opened his eyes, that horrible white light still blinded him, but instead of charging towards him, it was glaring from three big rectangles that seemed to be affixed to the ceiling of a blank white room. The light hurt his eyes, hurt his entire head. He groaned. So this was death. Nicholas Falcott? Nick turned his head slowly. There was an old man sitting by his bed. Where the devil am I? You're in London. The man had a faint accent and wore an outlandishly oversized yet strangely delicate species of spectacles. You are in the care of the Guild. The year is 2003. Nick laughed, then winced. Laughing was a bad idea. That's a fine jest, he whispered, almost literally side-splitting. I'm afraid it's not a joke. Nick closed his eyes. The light was too brutal. If it's really 2003, then what has happened to my mother, my sisters? As you would imagine. Nick kept his eyes closed. He was surely dead, but his pain was real enough. Perhaps he was alive, trapped in some blanched and fevered nightmare. How cruel of his dreams to mock him like this when the war was grim enough. When he opened his eyes, the old man was still there, watching him with soft-eyed compassion. Nick had to pull himself together. Even in a dream, he wanted no mawkish tenderness. He would play his part. So, he tried to sound like a gentleman and a soldier, assured and calm in the face of crisis. They are dead in 2003, but they are not dead in 1812. They need me. You must send me back. The old man sucked in his cheeks and regarded Nick over the top of his peculiar eyewear. There is no going back. Surely if I came to this time, I can return. There is no return, I'm afraid. Progress is only forward. No one has ever gone back. Then I shall be the first. You can't. 
The old man spread his hands like an innkeeper apologizing for having run out of roast beef. I'm sorry, but no one ever returns. It is impossible. I'm not no one. Nick made a motion to straighten his cuffs, a gesture that never failed to intimidate, only to discover that he was dressed in almost nothing. I'm very much afraid that in this regard you are no one. Even if it were physically possible to go back, which it is not, the guild has rules and you must abide by them. Guild? What can control can a guild have over me? I am Nicholas Falcott. I am Marquis of Blackdown. I'm no artisan. Please listen to me. The old man leaned forward and propped his elbows on his thighs, his hands clasped down between his knees. Behind his freakish spectacles, his hazel eyes were huge and earnest like the eyes of an old plow horse. I know it's hard to understand, but please be attentive. Who's the king? I must speak to the king immediately. Young man. The hazel eyes flared, their fire stirred. You will listen to me. Nick raised his eyebrows but shut his mouth. The old man subsided into his seat. Thank you. He took a deep breath. Now, you are in the year 2003. It has been almost two centuries since you are believed to have perished in Spain. You left no heir. The Marquisate of Blackdown died with you. The Marquisate extinct. It had passed from father to son since Lord Clancy Falcott had routed the nuns and raised the convent that stood by the River Calm. For his pains, he had been made first Marquis of Blackdown by Henry VIII. Nicholas had never seen a nun until he went to Spain, and then at Badajoz, he shut his eyes. This deathly dream was bad enough. He did not want to add to its horrors by thinking of the siege. Yet how fitting it would have been for the Marquisate, born from the destruction of a convent, to expire there in defense of those pitiful women. But that hadn't happened. Instead, Lord Blackdown and his title had marched away from Badajoz with the rest of Wellington's infamous army. He and his title had stumbled together across Spain for a few more hot and desolate weeks, only to die together for no cause at all, scrabbling in the dust, watched by the flat black eyes of Jem Jemison. The old man cleared his throat, and Nick opened his eyes. I'm dead. You're not dead, the man said, nor do you dream. The Marquisate is extinct. Falcott House is now owned by the National Trust, and the king is a queen. The National Trust? What in blazes is that? It means, essentially, that your former estate is well cared for by a charity. My former estate? Nick blew his breath out between pursed lips. Yes, I know it is a shock, but I'm afraid I have news you might find even harder to stomach. It is a harsh rule, but the Guild insists that you must leave the country of your birth. Leave and never return. Not ever. Not for as long as you live. The dream became truly terrible then. Nick's head seemed to crack open with pain, and his sight darkened. The room seemed to be full of people. Nick heard his own voice, but he wasn't sure if he was speaking words. Then something sharp pinched his arm, and the dream was washed away into blissful nothingness. And last but certainly not least, we have conversation between Alicia Foster and her editor, Juliet Anan, where they talk about Alicia's latest book, Warpaint. Hello, this is Juliet Annan. I'm the publisher of Fig Tree, an imprint of Penguin. And this month, we're publishing a fantastic debut novel by Alicia Foster. It's called War Paint, and it's about four women painters in England in 1942. And that's a dark world of conflict and hardship and subterfuge, uh, where information is a matter of life and death. These women are all painters. They're all artists who've been uh, pulled into the war effort, the propaganda effort. And uh, throughout the novel, we find out what happens to them, but we also enter the world of espionage. And it's also often a very comic world. So, Alicia, how did you come to write War Paint? It was 
two things really. Um, as in most things in life, it wasn't planned. What happened was uh, at the time I was thinking about writing about women war artists, there was uh, all sorts of stuff in the press and in the air about um, the morality of war and the ethics of what you do to win a war. Um, this was about five or six years ago. At the same time, I was researching women uh, for an art history book, and I came across in the Museum of London, in fact, um, some war diaries by a woman artist. And she described working for the ministry, the difficulties of that, the pleasures of it, the whole experience of being in London at that time, trying to make art out of the ruined streets, out of um, the decimation she saw around her. During the course of this period that she was writing the journals, she made a hasty marriage and then equally, equally rapidly separated from her husband. And the diary from that period was actually missing. And that's where my imagination set to work. I started to wonder what had happened, how I could relate that to the wider issues of making work for the government at that time. Um, and, and it kind of developed from there. Yes, because that's a very interesting thing, I think, about propaganda during war, that um, in the case of these women, you make it very clear that they're being asked by the ministry to prevent a sort of plucky world of people buckling to uh, in difficult times. And actually, of course, um, several of these women see some very devastating things that they are not then allowed to cover in the way that they would like to. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, yes, it's the whole, it's the whole issue of um, you're asked to report, to observe. But as one of the characters says in the book, it's what you choose to observe that's important. And, of course, there was a very a strong issue about you know, not showing the, the, the decimation, not showing injuries, not showing what was actually happening, that what, was, what the purpose of art at that time run by the War Artists Advisory Committee was to document, but to document in a way that wouldn't demoralise the people. At the same time, as all the kind of official art was going on, there was black propaganda being um, organised and made from a secret villa out near Bletchley Park, and the purpose of the work that they were making, and that included art, um, was to demoralize the enemy. So it was that kind of contrast between the two kind of the, the hidden, the black side and the official um, rousing, wholesome voice that I found really intriguing. And so the book kind of weaves those two together to kind of ask some questions about uh, the representation of war, the relationship of what we see in the stories we're told about war and what actually happened. In the book, you very skillfully weave in and out of fiction and non-fiction. How did you find that? Did you find it weird to be making real people uh, have feelings and say things that they you really had no idea whether they would have thought or would have done? Well, I do get the strong... I mean, every time you read a history book, every time you see a portrait of someone from the past, you kind of... You try and find out the kind of facts, but you also your imagination sets to work, you invent stories. And I've always done that when I've been in an art gallery or when I've read a kind of historical, a work of history. So it was actually letting that go a bit and exploring it. I found it, um, it felt like um, being set free, actually. And you've got some very funny portraits in there. I mean, the portrait of uh, Kenneth Clark is extremely funny and uh, must have been based on reading biographies of him or yes. his letters or <laughs> diaries or yeah I mean and also the fact that uh, one of the artists Laura Knight she battled with the ministry she was a, a very eminent figure at the period perhaps the most famous one of the most famous artists in the country let alone one of the most famous women artists 
Yet she had a real struggle getting them to pay her properly, getting her to, getting them to pay her expenses, and uh, she battled. She battled to, for kind of status. Uh, Clark, of course, was a big friend of the big male art, artists of the time, Henry Moore and Graham Sutherland. And it, I mean, it was a different culture was a different world then, and women were seen. Women involved in culture were seen as a on rather a lower level, I think. And uh, Knight, of course, battled with that. Yes, of course, you do very skillfully and very funnily have this junior junior man at the ministry who is constantly trying to get the women to do what he wants them to do, but constantly being uh, befuddled by them as they get the better of him. And I think you get across very strongly that, that feeling that, you know, possibly women had a bit more to contribute to the war effort than some men thought at the time. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, well, it's, I mean, it's still the case in the art world today, actually, um, that, you know, women are underrepresented. And, of course, this was absolutely even more the case during that period. And uh, but at the same time, that, that wave of women had come into the art schools in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s and wanted to work. And it was that kind of struggle to have a voice and to make work that would be taken seriously against the expectations of the kind of work that women should do, the kind of work that was acceptable for women to do. So at the same time, I've, I've got one of the characters, Faith Farr, um, trying to kind of um, represent what she sees around on the streets in a way that will pass muster. You've got another woman artist, um, Cecily Brown, who is actually doing the kind of work that the ministry wants. And in fact, only one of the women war artists was an official salaried artist. And, and she did this work that was, I mean, it's very beautiful. It's very subtly colored. It's very witty, but it's gentle. There's nothing controversial in there. Everything, there's a hospital scene that she painted in which oh, there's no injuries to be seen. Everything's covered <laughs> over with warm blankets. You know, you don't, uh, the, you know, her, her war scenes are things like women in the WI canning fruit. You know, you wouldn't get the sense of any kind of mess or heartache or loss or anything like that happening from those works. And of course, she was the one that was official, officially given the title of war artist, the only woman to be, to be uh, given that title and was put on a salary. And that gives you a kind of an indication of what they wanted from women and how far a lot of the women's work fell short of what they wanted or what they expected women to be making. Yes, and that's even truer, I suppose, of the, of the woman artist who you represent who, who was uh, actually providing art for black propaganda. I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions that black propaganda raises about morality and, mm. uh, and you know, espionage and counter-espionage also. Um, what drew you into the world of espionage, which you probably, at the beginning, knew nothing about? It all came through the art, actually. It was it was finding out. I was interested in the whole aspect of, of uh, the distance between what actually happens and what we show. And it was this really interesting um, kind of uh, paradox of the, the official art was everything was hidden, yet you had this unofficial art, this kind of black art that, that showed everything. It was pornographic. It was violent. It was really unpleasant. Um, and the kind of two things going on together, this uh, kind of, um, of course, the government didn't want anything to do with this officially, although they condoned it and they paid for the goings on at Black. And do you think that counter that um, Black propaganda actually worked in undermining uh, another country? Did uh, things that Germany put out over here and things that we put out over Germany, do you think they do work to demoralise people? I'm not sure. I don't think anyone's actually sure. I think I think it, it's an interesting question, and other fiction writers have touched on this and have been involved in writing about this. But at, at the same time, I mean, I, I really felt from my research and from my kind of writing that it it was a bit of a game, actually. It was a bit of a 
there was something, some pleasure in it that, that wasn't kind of admitted, or, or, you know, although it was presented as something that had to be done. Actually, really, I mean, I think the jury's still out on whether that kind of black, the black arts of, uh, of propaganda actually work. I think that's all fascinating. And this is a fascinating book. And thank you very much, Alicia Foster, for talking to us today. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please head on over to wbby.co slash j0y1 and vote for us to win a Webby. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.